Welcome to the milk bar. 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 Welcome along to episode 477 of the Milk Bar. Jason Forrest here with you as ever. And coming up on the show, we'll be finding out how the Lord Bilston big challenge went. Raising funds for Compton Care. Having a chat with a couple of the cyclists and also uh, the team at Compton finding out about uh, that one. Uh, also, we've got music. Uh, we'll be talking all about the Solihull Summerfest once more. Today, we have Scully from Razorlight joining us for a chat, talking about the music and the festival and some great new stuff they've got on the way. We'll be hearing from Simon Breakley for the Black Country Living Museum about a building that is moving from Wolverhampton into the museum itself, but it's still in use in Wolverhampton at the moment and there's fundraising and information they need around the building. We'll talk more about the movement of a clinic uh, which looked after infants back from the 20s through until pretty much present day with things that are going on down there, so that's coming up. And we'll be talking about people trying on clothes for social media photos and then sending them back to the retail outlet that they bought them from. But we were talking about that one as well. That's coming up on the show. But first of all, research has shown the majority of children would leave behind nuclear weapons, war, and use solar power if they were to head off to another planet. They can find out all about space travel at an exhibition which is currently making its way around the UK and is due to stop off at Peterborough Cathedral. To find out more about that, I'm joined now by Human Spaceflight and Microgravity Programme Manager for UK Space, Libby Jackson. Hello. Hello. So first of all, you have the coolest job title in the world ever. Uh, Thank you. Secondly, I mean, kids love everything to do with space because they are the future of our population. So they need to be the ones who are getting a bit excited about everything that's going on in the world. And uh, there's a lot that space can teach us, isn't there? Absolutely. As you say, science, technology, engineering, it is everywhere. Everything we touch, we use is all because of somebody manufacturing it, designing it, building it. Um, it's, it's absolutely everywhere. And space does have this wonderful ability to inspire, to spark creativity, enthusiasm and curiosity. And, and that's why it's wonderful to see the Soyuz capsule going around the country. Everybody can come and, and learn about it, be a part of uh, Tim's mission and just generally get involved and get excited and see that space is something that really is important in everyday lives. Yeah, because this is a tour of Tim Peake spacecraft, and there's a research that's been carried out around this one has come from Samsung and the Science Museum. So everybody's teaming up to bring a fantastic experience to kids from across the country. I mean, it's already been to uh, York, Manchester, Edinburgh. It's in Peterborough until the 5th of November. So what can they expect to see at the Sawyer's exhibition? You see the spacecraft itself, which is utterly beautiful you can see the scorch marks on it but it is tiny you'll be surprised how small it is you have three people crammed into something that's really not much bigger than sort of a you know telephone box space each of them it's <laughs> tiny um, and alongside that you have a wonderful virtual reality experience that samsung have put together you can put the headset on and tim peak narrates you through the return to earth you can you can look around and see what the space station's like see what the capsule is like uh, and there's a there's a bus as well that um, you can go and do some astronaut training in so that's all going on around this exhibition but I mean, you say you've put the creativity of the kids into uh, seeing what comes out in this survey and if we were to populate another planet there's lots of things they'd like to take with them but there's certain things they wouldn't they want to leave disease at home but make sure that they use renewable energy so they want a clean green start on their new world yeah it's, it's really brilliant to see uh, what young people think is important. They, they want to leave plastics behind. Uh, they, they want to leave um, 
fossil fuels behind there, they're really seeing that solar energy and wind energy at the start. And they want this to be a happy, peaceful place that is either run by their mum and dad, and if that's not possible, a democracy by everyone. So it's great to see the young people taking responsibility, um, understanding that this planet is important. And so if we do go and uh, populate any others, we need to look after those uh, as well and, and really definitely look after planet Earth. And uh, yeah, talking of other planets, there's the excitement as well around the name of the ExoMars rover. That's due to launch in 2020. So uh, tell us a, a bit about all of this competition. Yeah, so the ExoMars rover is being built here in the UK, um, in Stevenage. Uh, it launches in 2020. It's going to look for signs of life on the planet, and it needs a name. So we've got a, a, a call out for everybody to enter. Anyone across any of the European Space Agency uh, member states can enter. Uh, we need a name um, that is fitting for something that has a great scientific mission and um, can't be a name that's been used uh, by any other mission. Uh, and if it's to be uh, honoured after someone uh, who was a real person, they need to have been uh, dead for at least 25 years as of October. So get your thinking caps on, get the names in. Uh, somebody somewhere will suggest the name that this mission will be named after. Which is exciting in itself, and yeah, basically your choice could be immortalised in the world of exploration in space. And it, it, it is important that kids are educated about this, and this uh, touring exhibition we're talking about with the Soyuz capsule is a brilliant way of doing it. So uh, yeah, that is, uh, so it's heading off, it's Peterborough until the 5th of November. Uh, where else is it heading around the UK? After that, it heads on to Cardiff uh, from about November uh, through to January, and then in February it's going over to Belfast. So really an opportunity for people all around uh, the UK to get a chance to, to go and see this, this great engineering marvel. Yeah, so absolutely. Peterborough Cardiff for the probably the best two uh, for us in the Midlands. So uh, look out uh, for yeah, dates you can get over there. And do people need to book to go and see this exhibition? Uh, I don't believe so. You can head uh, to the cathedral. The virtual reality experience, um, from what I've seen and heard in other places, does tend to book out, so so, so get your tickets for that. Uh, but, but get along and, and go and see it. Um, everyone I've seen to has been completely blown away by it, um, and the cathedral will be a, a stunning location for it as well. Uh, sounds absolutely brilliant. And uh, how does your work in uh, the human spaceflight and microgravity uh, come into play in, in a lot of what we do? Is that, is, is that something which uh, is an area we need to watch out for? Because microgravity can be really useful in the development in the, uh, of things like drugs and, and new materials, can't it? Absolutely. What I do enables us to be a part of the International Space Station program. I help all the scientists across the country and industry who, who put experiments there uh, get involved with it. We've got some experiments that are heading up to the space station later this year. And as you say, all that research that is done there, and there's over 200 experiments every six months take place, it, it's helping us discover how the human body works, um, how we age, we're looking for new materials, new drugs. All of it is is fed back and helps everybody back here on Earth. We wouldn't be doing exploration if it didn't have those benefits for all of us. Yeah, so you talk about materials and drugs. I mean, chemical reactions can take place differently when there's different catalysts involved, and gravity is a big one of those catalysts. So we might get something interesting, new and different that uh, comes purely out of the space industry. Yeah, gravity is a, a really big force. If you can, if you can take it away, if you, if you go into orbit and you don't see the effects, you can start understanding how other processes work. And when you're looking at those really tiny scales, it can, it can make a big difference. 
we've seen uh, great things uh, come out of the space industry. The cameras that are ubiquitous in, in all of the phones that we have <laughs> in our pockets came directly uh, from space missions. Um, there are all sorts of other examples from, from milk formula um, through to, to memory foam mattresses. It come, the, the imagination and the creativity that when you have to shrink things and deal with all the confines of space, um, lead us to invent things that then you know suddenly go across uh, the whole world and, and we all use without thinking about it every day. It's all good stuff. If people want to find out more about the whole of the uh, exhibition that's uh, travelling around the UK, where can they go to? Uh, they can head to samsung.co.uk. Uh, they'll find information there. If they want more information about how to name the Mars rover, head to the UK Space Agency website, uh, which is www.gov.uk slash UK Space Agency. Uh, Google either of them or use any other search engine you wish. And I'm um, lots of information out on the web to point you to the right directions. Libby Jackson, Human Spaceflight and Microgravity Program Manager. I love that. Uh, from the UK Space Agency, thank you so much for joining us and telling us a little bit about this research. Thank you. it is, the shape I'm in, well I go out somewhere then I come home again, a lot of cigarettes I can't get no sleep, there's nothing on the TV, nothing on the radio that means that much to me, all my life, watching America, all my life, is panic in America. This August bank holiday weekend on the 25th and 26th, Solly Hull Fest is underway. It's the big summer festival taking place, and there's some amazing bands performing down there. Sunday's lineup includes Razor Light. I'm joined now by Scully. Hello, sir. Hey, how you doing? I'm good. How are you? I'm all right, thank you. Very, very good. So, a uh, busy summer ahead of you? We've been touring everywhere, actually, this summer. It's been really busy, and we've been having a lot of fun. We've got another gig tonight, actually, so we're on, on where we go. Which is the way you like it. I mean, obviously, uh, several bands who are on this bill have had various uh, career highs. I mean, you just sort of kept going, haven't you, from the uh, the number one single in America throughout the rest of your career. It's just a constant stream of fantastic music. Oh, well, thank you very much. Yeah, we're excited. Uh, we, we've got a new album. It's finished. It'll be out in October. In fact, there'll be, some, there'll be a single out at the end of this month, actually. And uh, at Solly Hill, we definitely plan to play a bunch of new ones, along, of course, with the, the classics and the hits. So we're going to have a good night. And, and what's your favourite song to perform live to that sort of audience? Because sometimes I know bands get a little bit tired of playing their biggest numbers. But uh, is that the case for you, or are you still loving every single one of your tunes? Uh, well, I love playing the old ones because you can just sort of see how happy it makes people and how much fun it is. Like, you know, because when the audience is going crazy and having a great time, we just sort of feed off that. You know, that's like gives us energy to keep going. So I'd say one of my favorite songs to play live is um, Before I Fall to Pieces. Mm-hmm. That's always a really good, feel good one. And uh, the crowd loves it and I love playing it. And how long is it you guys have been performing together now? Because I mean, obviously there's always stuff that goes on in the background before we see it really come to the fore. Yeah, well, let's see. I've been in the band about 10 years, um, and Johnny's been doing it, I'd say, God, maybe 15 years now? Something like that? Pretty long time. 
Uh, but that does mean you are pretty much ready for anything that can get thrown at you during a, a show these days. What, what's this, probably the strangest thing that's happened on stage since you've been with the band? <laughs> There's always some weird stuff. People, you know, people run on stage and run around and like, you know, try to tackle you while you're performing. Or um, one time, I think someone's proposed on stage during one of our gigs. Before. Well, not to you though, whilst you're uh, doing it, no. No, th- thankfully, no, not to me. Uh, and then once we were in China, and um, they didn't tell us that they were using drone cameras. <laughs> so, like, I was literally just smashing away my drums, and I could have sworn there was, like, a hawk or an eagle or something about to take my head off. I was like, what the heck is that? But it was actually a drone camera. We just, no one bothered to tell us, so that was quite strange. We were not expecting that. It does but, keep yeah, on your toes. Yeah, Exactly. Um, with uh, the, this festival itself, I mean, are, are you one of these guys who likes to hang around and watch the rest of the festival? Obviously, you're quite near the top of the bill, so uh, you do get to see most of the acts before you, if you fancy it. Yeah, for sure. We usually try to hang out and enjoy the day. You know, I mean, there's a lot of stuff to do with these things, and um, you know, as long as we get there in time, yeah, we'll always uh, we'll always check out some of the bands. And is there a, a band you would like to have seen at a festival in years gone by? Um, yeah, well, sure. Um, I would have loved to have seen Led Zeppelin. Um, that would have been a dream for me. Um, of course, I'd love to have seen the Beatles. I regret to say that I never got to see Prince, um, mm-hmm. so I'm quite sad about that. Um, but, you know, we have had a chance. I mean, we've toured with you 2 We've done stuff with Queen, The Stones. I mean, we've had a chance to see some great, great bands and tour around the world and do some really cool things, so I'm very grateful for that. Well, so amazing bands coming up at uh, Solihull Summer Festival for 2018. So you are along on the Sunday, the 26th. Uh, that day you've got Busted, Razorlight, Lightning Seeds, The Beat featuring Rankin Roger, as well as many, many more. And uh, it's going to be an absolutely fantastic lineup. And uh, just uh, on the on the new music front, I mean, what is the, uh, the the forthcoming single? Is this going to drive people absolutely wild when they hear this on stage? I think so. I think um, the, the new album is exactly what Razorlight fans uh, would, would hope to hear from a new Razorlight album. Um, it's really exciting. It's really fun and energetic. It's got loads of catchy hooks, and um, it's just a good rock and roll song. Um, and I think, actually, to be fair, I think the album's full of them. There's a load of great stuff on there. And I'm going to release a few songs um, over the next few months. I think there'll be another single in October. And then the album will come as well in October, I think. That's the plan as far as I know it now. You'll be seeing a lot more of the band in the next uh, couple of years. That's absolutely brilliant. We look forward to seeing you somewhere near the top of the charts. That's going to be brilliant in itself. SolihullSummerFest.co.uk is the website to get your tickets. You can do all that online. As I say, the events are the 25th and 26th of August, a brilliant weekend ahead. Full details as well on Facebook at Solihull Summerfest, on Twitter, Summer Solihull, and there's video trailers and all sorts online if you check it around. And uh, I expect to see your smiling faces in that video too. It's going to be absolutely brilliant. Well, there we go. Scully from Razorlight, thank you for joining us. Have a fantastic time at the gig and we look forward to you rock in the Midlands. Absolutely, we'll see you out there. I know a girl with a golden touch She's got enough, she's got too much But I know you wouldn't mind You could have it all if you wanted You could have it all if it matters so much To put you down when you're there, the your friend. But then when you're not around, they say, Oh, she has changed. You know what they mean when they mean they're just jealous. 
never do the things I wish that they could do so well On the weekend of the 21st of July, the Board Bilston Big Challenge raising funds for Compton Care was out and about on the bikes. We have Brendan and Chris, who were two of the riders, and uh, travelling in style at the back there. We've got Grace, and we've got a friend down here as well, haven't we? We've got Bo as well. Come on, guys, let's, let's all come round here, and we'll have a bit of a natter about uh, the, the whole event. Uh, Bo is, is, is more worried about getting out the trailer, I think, but, uh, but there we go. So, uh, first of all, uh, Brendan, I mean, uh, raising funds uh, in memory of your father. Yes, indeed. And uh, obviously a, a big challenge for 2018 and uh, a fantastic event. So tell us a bit about the detail. Well, we started in Swansea mm -hmm. and we headed towards the Brecon Beacons and then we worked our way across the Brecon Beacons on foot, carrying the girls on a stretcher. And then from there we got back on the bikes, uh, 16 miles to a canoe, into the canoe, um, six miles in the canoe, back on the bike, 74 miles, towing in this contraption, um, the girls all the way from there. The whole point of this was the girls were not allowed to touch the floor at any point between leaving Swansea and getting back to the city. Correct. The idea was that we would carry the load yeah. um, as the nurses and the staff at Compton do um, on a daily basis for their patients and for the families of their patients. And raising money along the way and what's the total looking like so far because uh, you're still raising a few bits we're aren't you? We're looking at about 10,000 at the moment. Which yep. is good going, that's, that's rather impressive. Fantastic, fantastic. So I mean Chris, uh, part of the team, uh, what was it like uh, doing the, the cycling, the canoeing, the carrying, was it hard work? Oh very hard work. I struggled the last 30 mile myself personally <laughs> yeah. but a lot of the lads, good lads, get you through it. And did you take good it in work. terms of carrying the weight of the ladies? So I know there's nothing to them so they were fairly light but we had three teams for the two stretchers, um, teams of six, mm -hmm. and we was changing every three minutes, and it got us over really. But it's it hard work though. The only way you're going to be able to do it, but uh, so we won't ask the ladies their weight or their age, but uh, <laughs> we know that uh, it was that they are not not too heavy, and you trained with sacks of potatoes or something on the SM. Uh, sandbags. Sandbags, was it? Yeah. Okay. Sandbags and uh, old military stretchers, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> and, and that got everybody through and, and got you prepared for it. Uh, was there any other type of preparation that you did getting ready for all of this, apart from months in the gym? Um, well, it's just bike training, really. Yeah. Hill training. But I don't think anything can prepare you for it. Once you've worked off three hours sleep, once you're uh, 20 hours in, it's just getting your head down and getting back home really because it was a constant run there was were there any breaks at all uh we stopped every so often to change uh tandem riders mm -hmm. um we stopped for a break just to refuel mm -hmm. so yeah but that, but that that was that was it other yeah. than that you kept going and, and grace mm -hmm. uh tell us about you and your colleague who were riding in the lap of luxury well yeah you can see it was the lap of luxury you got a padded seat yeah um it was well. Yeah, our experience was nothing in compared in comparison to these lads. They they grafted hard. There were points where I couldn't quite believe how hard they were working, and just the whole time thinking they're doing this for Compton, they're doing it for the patients. It's incredible what they've put their bodies and their minds through for us. 
Um, but we had a great time. <laughs> Did they feed you snacks and stuff on the way? Was there like in-flight movies as well? No, we were conscious of not adding to the weight <laughs> at any point. Um, but they were great, always making sure we were okay, that we were comfortable. Um, and like Bren said, you know, the, they're, they're carrying the load, they're carrying us, and Compton carries the load for lots of families every single day who are going through really, really difficult times and trying to make it that little bit easier. And yeah, people can continue to support. I mean, through events like this, it really does raise the profile. And it's it's about sharing that load. And Compton just does that so well. And so it's good when you've got such great supporters like the guys who are doing this. Yeah. So we got it took 25 hours in total. Um, and I think it's all fair to say by the time we got back, we were all kind of exhausted but elated at the same time. Mm-hmm. So there's just this sense that we'd all been through this really amazing once in a lifetime challenge that not very many people if anyone else has ever done before yeah, it and is, I spent it's most, a novelty one yeah exactly <laughs> and we love a bit of novelty so it was um I spent most of Sunday feeling really quite emotional that they'd put themselves through this for for us it's amazing well, uh, brilliant work and say over 10 grand so far there's the opportunity still to give if people do want to get in touch and hand in more funds what do they do uh, they just need to go to our Facebook page go to the Lord Bilston big challenge Facebook page and uh, you should be able to get the Just Giving link from there um, and either through the Just Giving page or Direct to Compton. If you want to people make it, check Direct to Compton. Uh, written on the back, the Lord Bilston Big Challenge. Just so they Would know be, where it's in honour so of. Just where it's come from. Yeah, that'd be brilliant. Yeah, we're, yeah, obviously we want to try and raise as much as possible for this great charity. And, and what are you thinking maybe for next year? Because there's got to be another even bigger challenge, surely. <laughs> There may well be a bigger challenge, but <laughs> the main thing is that we tie this one down first. OK, let's get the funds in. That's See it. what you get to. That's it. And That's then it. they give them something to work on before next year. Not next year, the year after. We okay. do it every two years, right. by uh, yearly challenge. Um, so it gives me 18 months to dream something else. Yeah. <laughs> think, think of crazy ideas and weld things together to go on the back of bikes, that sort of stuff as well. It uh, may well be. Uh, this, this trailer may stay for the next one because it was a massive success. Okay. Um, so it was very much of a challenge and a massive success. So... The, uh, the trailer may feature with the tandem mm-hmm. in the next one. We um, have fantastic <laughs> weather for it from some ways, slightly harder work in the hot weather as well, I suppose. But so we're looking for the Lord Bilston Big Challenge on Facebook. And Grace, give us the web address for Compton Care. So it's comptoncare.org.uk. And like Brendan said, if you want to let us know that you're making a contribution to the guys' fantastic effort, just let us know. It's for the Lord Bilston Big Challenge. There we go. The Lord Bilston Big Challenge is doing fantastic things. Thank you all. And I know that's echoed by everybody who's involved in Compton as well. But congratulations and fingers crossed for another big one year after next. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. Edition is never truly brand new when it comes to the Black Country Living Museum. Simon Breercliffe, one of the historical researchers, joins me on the line now to tell me about something which is on the move from the city of Wolverhampton to the site just outside Dudley. Hello. 
Hello. So, uh, tell us a, a bit about what we're going to see, uh, which is moving over there, because it, it's a Wolverhampton clinic, isn't it? That's right. Um, we're looking to rebuild um, the infant welfare centre that is currently still standing on Lee Road in Penfields. Um, so the building is still in use, but it's um, it's, uh, it's kind of in decline. And uh, we're hoping to salvage as much as possible um, to bring it over to the museum and uh, rebuild uh, an infant welfare centre as it would have been in around about 1961. So this um, is really at the, the, the time of Call the Midwife, around that sort of era, I suppose. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So um, we're, we're trying to um, make sure that it's as realistic as possible so people will be able to compare it and see how realistic Call the Midwife really is. Um, but it's absolutely, we're setting it around 1961. There's some good reasons for that. There's some very interesting stories going on nationally in Wolverhampton at, at the time. So you got several new um, vaccinations uh, become available. One of the key purposes of the clinic was to make sure the babies were vaccinated fully. So the uh, the polio vaccine that you got on a sugar cube that came out for the first time in 1961. Um, it was also when um, uh, thalidomide was withdrawn. So that's mm -hmm. very related to kind of maternal health and um, smallpox was still around um, and there was all sorts of diseases. So people were very concerned with their children's health and so places like this were a really important part of the community and the nhs itself was still in its infancy really at that point and it was uh, developing into a bigger and wider service and there will be people who were they would have been born outside the nhs so this is probably the first experience some of the families would have had have been treated by the state that's right yeah um the building itself was built in 1928 um so that was long before the nhs mm -hmm. started um, and it was run by Wolverhampton Corporation. Um, when the NHS was founded in 1948, it was split into three kind of streams. So you had the hospitals, which were very much the NHS as everybody saw it, um, general practitioners, GPs, who stayed kind of separate, um, and then community health, which remained run by local councils, and this came under that. But So the funding came from the NHS, um, but the, the council was still involved in in children's welfare and had been for several years but the bringing it into the nhs enabled um, a great deal of development of kind of vaccinations and care and services and clinics that went on in the building so it really benefited the people of wolverhampton very much certainly preventative medicine obviously going to help the nhs significantly uh, keep the cost out of treating somebody for something like polio and uh, obviously a benefit for the patients on the grounds they don't end up with polio as well so you know a win-win situation all around but i mean what exactly. what can you expect to find in the building which is still true to those 1961 uh, years that you're actually looking at trying to move over because it's going to have been refurbished a few times since its initial build in the 20s through to now. Yes, that's right. Um, I, I obviously, it's had all new flooring and stud walls and things like that. But once you start looking closely, there are a few um, important features of it, doors and uh, um, windows and things like that that really make it look... Um, that you can really tell come from that period. Um, the particularly notable things are the... Um, the stonework scrolls on the above the two doors on the outside they've um, perished a little bit but we're hoping to bring those over what would have been lovely would be the cupola on top and the the old-fashioned windows that um were there in the 1950s but unfortunately those are long gone so those are things we're going to have to to recreate from scratch but you have some photos going back in time and uh, this will be around the 100th anniversary of the building once it's in situ so there's uh, going to be some interesting celebrations for the site itself once you get it down there yeah, definitely. And it, I mean, going with the 70th anniversary of the NHS this year, it's um, a really, a really nice thing to be able to do. Yeah.
So what uh, happens now? Because you've acquired the buildings, people have got to move out of it. So what is the time scale to turn it into a massive jigsaw puzzle and get it to the site over at the, the Black and Jigsaw yeah. Museum? Um, well, we're still um, in the process of applying for all the different funding we need. So this is part of a much bigger scheme called Forging Ahead, um, which is standing at something like £23 million development for the museum. So we're in the, in the process of securing funding from um, the local enterprise partnership, the Arts Council, and particularly the Heritage Lottery Fund. Um, and we'll get confirmation of that if we're successful um, in spring next year. And then we can start to go ahead. So it's, this is one of a large number of buildings that we're hoping to either to move brick by brick or to um, recreate buildings that are lost or otherwise un unusable for us. So um, there are other buildings from Wolverhampton. The most notable one is the Elephant and Castle. Pub. I knew I knew that phrase was coming. It had to come because that is one of the <laughs> most talked about no, no longer in existence buildings in the city. That's right. So it's a real, a real privilege, really, to be able to to recreate that one. It's a beautiful building, but the the more research we dig into, um, the more exciting the story becomes. Um, we know, for instance, that it was uh, the watering hole for a lot of Wolverhampton's Irish population when they moved to the city to work in the post-war period, um, and also for South Asian and Caribbean um, drinkers as well. So it's a really, it, it was a really diverse and interesting place and you get that same sort of story uh, which is such an important one in the history of Wolverhampton at this period you get the same story in the in the clinic that we're doing uh, about mothers coming from different parts of the world and receiving um, the treatment here under the NHS and um, benefiting the country in that way. And you've done quite a lot of work on Wolverhampton yourself haven't you over the years in particular uh, the area around uh, the Ring Road which is now kind of the Chubb buildings and, uh, and and that big car park at the, at the, the, the back end of the city there. Yeah, that's right. When I'm when I'm not here at the museum, I'm partway through a, a PhD, and I look at the area which was nicknamed Caribbean Island. Um, so if you look, it's just off Stafford Street and Broad Street, and kind of the area back there, back back uh, 150 years ago. That now we're talking. This was um, uh, the area where most of the Irish immigrants coming after the, the famine in Ireland lived in Wolverhampton. So um, you've got a real continuity going on there as well. Yeah, but I mean, I, I've become very interested in Wolverhampton in that period, but also in the backcountry as a whole for the for the post-war period that we're setting. So, um, Wolverhampton is very much part of the backcountry at this point, although that's you know sometimes a controversial suggestion. Um, but the Wolverhampton economy is really really important for for the backcountry as a whole and vice versa. So it's um, it's been really interesting to to look at Wolverhampton's place in the the history of the region and the the country um, in this post-war period. And let's skip forward 100 years, the Black Country Living Museum, uh, which is going to look back to the inception of Black Country Day 100 years ago, the time that we're living in now. What do you think of our buildings should be uh, preserved alongside the uh, the cobbled streets that you already have down there? And that's a really good question. I'm never quite sure. I always wonder what um, if we were to do a typical high street of 2018, what it would involve, perhaps a vape shop. Yes. <laughs> A vape shop, but uh, I, I don't know. It's it's very difficult to say. It's very difficult to see what kind of architecture will last, um, and what will be thought of as interesting or as important in in a number of years' time. I think some of the the public art that that, that you can find around the Black Country is particularly interesting. So some of the statues and things. So perhaps something like that would be my choice. Uh, and maybe uh, the um, the citadel off the Black Country route will be preserved for posterity uh, in the grounds. That's a possibility as well, isn't it? Yes, 
you never know. It <laughs> could happen. Well, Simon Brinkley, thank you for joining us. If people want to find out more about all the work of the Black Country Living Museum and, of course, donate towards the the general cause, what do they do? Um, we're, we're looking for all sorts of people with memories of the, um, not just of the building, but of the black country in that period. So if you, particularly if you remember anything about the buildings, if you worked there or someone from your family worked there, or you um, perhaps you went to the clinic as a child and you can tell us something about what it was like or who worked there, then uh, absolutely we'd be, look, we'd be very glad to get, for you to get in touch with us. Um, the best way is to have a look at our website. So you can just go to bclm.com and look for the Forging Ahead section in there, that's the name of our project. Or you can email us at uh, collections at bclm.com or you can give us a call on 0121 and use option three and that brings you through to the collections team where I work. Have a little uh, think, have a chat with maybe some of your older relatives who can fill you in on the details of what it was like when they were young and that sort of neck of the woods and get them in touch with the Black Country Living Museum and uh, let's preserve more of our region and uh, Wolverhampton is uh, is a big part of that and uh, it is good to, uh, to know that these things are being saved for future generations. Absolutely, look forward to hearing from as many people as possible. Simon, thanks for joining us. It's been a pleasure, thank you very much. One in ten Brits wear clothes once for the social media snap before returning items for a refund. It's rather cheeky, and if there are your local stories online, they may spot you doing it. Let's uh, find out more about a recent survey which has told us this. I'm joined now by Alex Longmore, fashion stylist. Hello. Hi, Jason. How are you doing? I'm good. I trust we find you well? Yes, good, thank you. And your full outfit is something that you're keeping. You're not going to try and return it after you've done the radio interviews, isn't it? <laughs> no, I'm sticking with the outfit I'm wearing. But... To be honest, I have bought, I am fully behind Barclay Car with this one. I have actually bought um, outfits for social media purposes, I have to admit. So the survey says, though, that men are more likely than women to return clothes. And is there yes. an interesting gender stereotype around this one that tells us that men are fickle? Well, no, I don't think, you know, um, I don't think men are fickle. I just think that, the, yeah, there's 12% men are posting a photo of a clothing item on social media and then returning it compared by only 7% of women. So I think with men, there is a lot of pressure on them with, when it comes to fashion. They're, men's fashion is having a huge moment. At, uh, you know, it, It's really at the forefront in the fashion world. It's bigger than women's wear at the moment. And I think there's a lot, a lot of pressure on men in a sense that when they're on social media, they follow their superstar footballer that they love or their influencer or their rap star, whoever it may be, and they want to copy what they're wearing. And it's 
you know, it's becoming more and more extreme. And, you know, Barclay Card have uncovered that there's a culture equates to the return culture equates to seven billion pounds worth of potential loss of sales. So that's a huge number. But, but are they wearing this purely for the social media snap to update their profile pic and then returning the leather jacket, leather trousers, whatever it was they thought would look good? Uh, or are they going to a party and then returning the waistcoat after they've enjoyed being seen out in it? Well, a bit of both, actually. Um, they are using, um, are going to buy it for social media and then returning it. And then more men are saying that they would feel embarrassed if a friend saw them in the same outfit out socially. And they are also, uh, more men admit to wearing tags on clothes and then returning, so wearing it out with the tags on and then returning it. So if you go top end so, designer, they're normally on a safety pin so you can put them back on. Not that I know too much about that, but there we go. Yes, exactly. So, and I think you can now buy tag machines. And also, <laughs> you know, there's lots, lots of ways around it. But, you know, the stores are, you know, this is going to hit the high street. And basically, stores are becoming, they're trying to do as much as they can uh, to combat this and to help with this loss of sales. So they're doing things like try before you buy, especially online, so you can order things, get them sent out, you can try them at home, and then you can return them. But what I really, I, you know, this this buying clothes just for social media really, really kind of, um, I find it quite stressful because really it's going to have a huge impact on the retailers mm-hmm. in the sense of what becomes trends. And this really goes across the whole of the fashion industry. So it's like a kind of almost false economy. And it's for the stores when they do their buying, they often go on what's trend-led. So what people have bought that season said so they bought 20 pairs of red shoes for example then they will order they will double that order so if those are all getting returned and they don't really know what their customer wants and likes and it's probably because they've seen it on someone else that's going to cause lots and lots of problems mm-hmm. so it is a, it's a tricky one for the retailers you never know where fashion is going to go next which is one of the issues i mean i, I know that so you, you talk about being on social media i've had uh, a friend say to me i saw you on telly in that shirt three times last week and uh, this only because all the interviews are filmed the same day so it's basically telling me i need to buy more clothes and swap things out and i you know it is uh, uh, about getting the, the the right set of outfits for, for absolutely everyone and the bit that amazed oh, me is okay. that so i could give you an example of that so you could wear a jacket in one one of the filmings yeah then you could uh, with a jumper say under it and a shirt then you could take the jacket off and just wear the jumper and then the next one you could just have the shirt on and that is how because i'm all about you know utilizing clothes in your wardrobe or you know and and creating different outfits without actually having to buy lots of outfits so this is the way to, to get around it. and, and well, certainly not. You can buy it, but just don't return don't it. Don't do the returns. But I mean, the amazement yeah. as well is blokes are apparently spending £114 per person on clothing each month. That equates to 300 quid more per year than women are spending at the minute. Yeah, yeah, I know. It's amazing. And I, I'm really pleased by that because I think that there is so much interest in menswear and there's so many iconic people like... Beckham, you know, look at how Gareth Southgate's waistcoat, mm-hmm. just, you know, everyone emulated that and copied that. So really, it, it's, a, it's a big thing. And I'm, I'm really pleased about that because I think men can really kind of enjoy the fashion wave that's going on for them. And streetwear is a big thing. You know, it's, it's all come from America and it, it, menswear is huge, especially streetwear is even bigger. You know, the whole trainer phenomenon, that's, that's really huge. 
I have about 15 pairs of trainers, so yeah, I'm afraid I am guilty as charged yeah. on that one. But there we go. But I mean, it's, it is, as you say, damaging some of the retailers, the uh, the buy to try culture, uh, particularly if they you know, they don't know quite whether it's going to work out. It's great to go into a shop and try things on and see how it suits you first. Uh, but say there yeah. is that option very often to do it mail order at home. But I say we we need to think about what we're doing. Uh, don't just do it for the social media snap. It's, uh, snap a cheeky shot in the, uh, in the in the changing room in the shop might be a better way of doing it, so they get a, an idea of what's going on. Uh, if, yeah, if, if they provided the backdrop in the the changing rooms, they might get around the problem. Well, that's a, thing. a brilliant, brilliant idea. Yeah, absolutely. That's a really good idea. And then they fall in love with what, what they're wearing. But also, you know, clothes are a personal thing. It's a uniform. It's how you want to present to the world, not just for a kind of kind of fake kind of audience that you're creating because you don't own the clothes. You know, you're just modelling the clothes. Um, you know, if you tag the stores that you're buying the clothes from or the label you're buying it from, then that does help the, the stores get publicity. But then we're going to go into a media, you know, much more media rather than less sales. So, you know, there there are ways about doing, a, you know, doing it this try before you buy to go to stores and really try things on properly, look at the videos online and really feel, do you know what? Above all, have confidence mm-hmm. to think you can wear the same outfit twice and it not be the biggest fashion faux pas or just invent other bits to to you, you know, wear, as I said, wear a jacket, wear a shirt over, a jumper over a shirt and then take those off or take photographs from different angles if social media is your is your big thing. I'm going to have to look at ways of accessorising. We'll see how we go with all of that. But meanwhile, where can people find out more about this survey from BarclayCard? Yes, go to home.barclaycard so, for more information. All about it on there. But uh, try and avoid upsetting the retailers. They're, they're struggling enough as it is without us exactly. uh, you know, borrowing clothes just to try on. Yes, exactly, exactly. It's all about buying and keeping. I think my modelling days are definitely over, whatever happens, however we look at it. But uh, it's an intriguing survey, and uh, I'm, I'm glad I'm, uh, I've got the chance to be fashion conscious, and I'm going to watch what I'm spending to make sure I beat that £114 target each month. Alex Longwall, yeah. fashion stylist, thank you for the tips and the, uh, the chat. Thank you. That's all for this week. Thank you so much for joining us back with episode 478 next week. I'll see you then. Ta-ra for now. Goodbye from the mill bar. Goodbye from the mill bar Goodbye from the mill bar Goodbye from the mill bar yeah. Goodbye from the mill bar yeah.